Let me just quickly pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you've inspired it by your spirit, that it is inerrant and infallible. Thank you, Father, that you use it in our lives. And Lord, we do pray that you'll do that now. Help me and, and empower me by your spirit. And Lord, speak to us all, uh, we pray. And Lord, we just pray that you'll be honoured and glorified and in our midst. In Jesus' name. Amen. So today is Remembrance Sunday, as I'm sure we're all aware, a day where we remember the, the sacrifice of those who have given their lives for our freedoms, and in particular the, the last two world wars, which have took place in the, the previous century. And so as we think back to these wars, and we remember that many who died in giving their lives uh, for their country, and indeed the millions of civilians who also died in these conflicts, as we look at current world events, um, the wars going on with, with Ukraine and Russia, with now uh, Israel and, and Hamas, as well as wars in other countries that we don't pro uh, probably hear of, all around the world in the past and uh, at present, we are reminded that this world is broken and is ravaged by sin, broken and ravaged by sin. And then we look at our own hearts, don't we? And we see that we too are broken and we too are ravaged by sin. And we realize that something is seriously wrong with our world. We know that death is not meant to be, pain, disease, war, and sin are intruders into our world and yet from our passage this evening, we see that whilst they are intruders, they are not here to stay. Our planet is broken, but one day it will be fixed forever. In Genesis, we read of God uh, creating all things perfect, don't we? There was no sin, no death, no war, but then man sinned. Man rebelled against God, and this brought a curse and everything else which which we see around us, everything that has resulted from sin and the curse. But as we get to the book, uh, the end of, of Revelation, we see that the Bible now has done a full circle and that at some point in the future, all things will be as God uh, originally intended them to be. And this is what we look forward to. And so there are three things then that stand out to us in this passage concerning the new creation, new heavens and a new earth. We see that God makes it. We see that God inhabits it. And thirdly, we see that there will no longer be any curse in it. The curse will not be in it. Firstly then, it is God who makes the new creation. And we know it's God because of those comforting words in verse 5 of 21 which come from the throne of God, behold, I make all things new. And this is further confirmed as we look at the passage which Tom has already read for us, Isaiah 65 and verse 17, another prophecy of the new creation. And it says there, God speaking, see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. And now of course, this is an obvious point. God is the creator of all things to begin with. He created everything in the beginning just by speaking, and so surely he will be the creator or the renovator of the new creation. But the point is that 
It is God who has not only brought redemption to his people through his son, through his death and resurrection, but he's also brought redemption, or we could say liberation, to creation too. And Paul, he picks this up in Romans 8, doesn't he? When he speaks of the whole creation uh, groaning and waiting to be liberated from decay uh, to freedom and glory. And we see the fulfillment of that pictured and foretold in our passage this evening. You see, man has turned away from God and that has brought creation under the curse. But God is the one who is making all things new. And now many people uh, use the objection of pain and suffering against God and on the basis of this argue for his non-existence. Maybe you've heard it, maybe once upon a time you said it yourself. But what they do not realise is that it is the human race who has caused this mess and now we know and we rejoice that God is sovereign, God is ultimately in control of all things, reigning over all things. But the Bible teaches just as clearly that man is also responsible. Man is also accountable. It is Adam that brought sin into this world and that has brought death, which has come uh, through sin and everything else that uh, plagues our planet and our lives. As one author once realised when in responding to the times, uh, the question was asked, what is wrong with the world? And the man wrote in, dear sir, I am. You see, we have made the mess, but God in his grace has sent his son to redeem lost sinners. And as a part of this redemption is that he's going to make all things new. A while back, I was away uh, at my wife's parents' house. They live near Preston on a farm. And my niece, who is now three years old, had come to stay at her grandma's house. My mother-in-law got out the toy box uh, for her and before long it was chaos. Every toy was out, any toy that could be dismantled was taken apart and scattered throughout the whole living room floor and it was an utter mess. And since having a daughter myself who's now 90 months old, uh, it is a regular occurrence in my house too. If she's in the room, give it five minutes and it will be a tip. And the point is that this is like what man has done to creation. Sin, death, war, and all the suffering that results from sin and the curse. It's all around us and our world is in a mess. But God is like the parent who who comes along and and puts the toys back together, uh, tidies everything up uh, and puts everything away. God is going to make all things new. And what we can learn from this point for ourselves then which is relevant to us, is that whilst it's good and right and important to be good stewards of God's creation, to do what we can to look after our world, whilst it's good and right to seek peace and the end of all war, as well as to remember those who have died in war, as we do uh, on Remembrance Sunday, the reality is we cannot fix it. No matter how many people protest, no matter... uh, how many governments sign peace treaties, no matter how much defensive weaponry is used as a deterrent, we cannot fix it because we cannot change the human heart. We cannot make all things new. And this was highlighted by the last two world wars. The first world war was uh, 
called the, the war to end all war. The war to end all war, that's what they labelled the First World War. And it's estimated that around 6.5 million people died in that war. So just think, uh, the last month or so, is it, they're estimating maybe about in total 11, 12,000 have died in this conflict with Israel and, and Hamas so far on both sides. And in the First World War, it was 6.5 million. Just a, a, a huge amount of death, of human life gone. That's the First World War, the war to end all war. If only they listened to Plato, he once said that only the dead have seen the end of war, or better yet, the Lord Jesus Christ, who said that until he returns, there will be wars and rumours of wars, because not even 25 years passed by until the Second World War broke out, where it's estimated that around 70 to 85 million died in the Second World War. So the First World War, the war to end all war, 6.5 million, not even, uh, not even 25 years later. The Second World War, 70 to 85 million, more than 10 times people died in that Second World War. And this just shows that sure we can educate people, we can remind people of the horrors of war, we can seek peace and protest, but we cannot fix our broken world, and that's because we cannot even fix our own sinful hearts. We are like the baby on the living room floor. We only have the capacity to make mess and to destroy things and to break things. Only God can fix our planet. Only God can make all things new. And praise God, the great news is that he is going to. And the question is, just before I move on to my next point, Will you be a part of that new creation? Will you be there? And of course, the answer to that depends upon whether the Lord Jesus is your personal Lord and your personal Saviour. So God will make the new heavens and the new earth. But we also see some characteristics of the new creation. And the first of these is that God will inhabit it. God will dwell there. Now, of course, in one sense, God already inhabits his creation, doesn't he? He's what we would call omnipresent. He's everywhere, all at once. He's here now. He's in Israel. Now he's in Gaza. He's at home with my wife. There is nowhere where God is not. He is everywhere. And whilst in one sense God inhabits this, this current creation, God will literally dwell with his people in the new creation. We will behold God's glory in a very real, visual sense. And the covenantal promise found throughout the Bible, uh, quoted in verse 3 of 21 of our passage, will be fully fulfilled. It says that God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. And again, in one sense, God already dwells with us, doesn't he? He dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. Every person who has been born again and is trusting in the Lord Jesus is indwelt by the Spirit of God. So he already, in one sense, dwells with us. But in a new creation, this will be in a much greater sense, a way that we can't even fathom right now, even comprehend, where we'll be in God's immediate presence. And we get a vivid picture of this in our passage in verse 22 of 21, where we see that John is now speaking of this mysterious city, the new Jerusalem. And he says that there's not a, there's not a temple there because God and the Lamb are its temple. 
And then he says in the next verse that we see that there'll be no need for a sun or for a moon because God's glory will be its light and the lamb will be its lamp. And now there are various interpretations concerning this city. Some take it to be a literal city, others to be a symbol of the perfected people of God. Remember, I said we're not going to get into controversy tonight. So whichever, whichever one you think is correct, the point is clear. God will dwell with his people. Whether it's a literal city, whether it's the people of God coming down, God will dwell with his people. And if that's not clear enough, we see in 22 verse 4 that it says that we will see God's face. And of course, God is spirit. God does not have a physical face. Jesus does, God the Son. God the Son became a man, didn't he? He now has a, a resurrected body and will for all eternity. And so we see Jesus face to face. But the point is here of seeing God's face, it's not that we will literally see God's face because he doesn't have one, he's his spirit. But we will see Jesus face to face and a manifestation of God's glory no one this side of eternity has ever seen. We will be in his immediate presence. And this is the, the greatest part of heaven, the greatest part of glory. The best bit is not the, the undoing of sin or the lack of war, the removal of death, as we will see these things will take place, but it is the immediate presence of God. As we will spend eternity with the God who has created us and loved us and redeemed us through the precious blood of his own dear son. Randy Alcorn, he has an article called uh, Heaven Would Be Hell Without God, where he writes this. The best part of heaven on a new earth will be enjoying God's presence. He'll actually dwell among us. Just as the Holy of Holies contained the dazzling presence of God in ancient Israel, so will the new Jerusalem contain his presence. The new earth's greatest miracle will be our continual, unimpeded access to the God of everlasting splendor and perpetual delight. This is the greatest thing of heaven. God will be there. This amazing uh, God that we can't even comprehend. He'll be there and we'll be with him. And I wonder, is this what we look forward to as we consider the new creation? Is our greatest desire to be in God's immediate presence or is it purely just to have all discomfort removed? Do we long to see Jesus face to face and this is our greatest longing? Or do we purely desire heaven because we long for its pleasures and its joys, not realizing that God is its pleasure and God is its joy? It was Samuel Rutherford, uh, we could say a Scottish Puritan, who once wrote these words, he said, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without you, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have you still, it would be a heaven to me, for you are all the heaven I want. And if tonight, as you listen to this message, that is your greatest desire, you know the Lord, you love him, uh, and your greatest desire is to be in the immediate presence of God and to see Jesus face to face, if you could truly say along with the psalmist tonight that there is no one I have in heaven but you and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, then you can rejoice with all your heart because before long, faith will turn to sight and you will see Jesus face to face and at his return, 
you will dwell with God forever in the new creation. Fanny Crosby, the blind uh, hymn writer, she knew this truth and she expressed it well. Someone once said to her, um, I think it's a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many of the gifts upon you. I'm sure we've all sang some of the hymns. And yet this is what she said. She said, do you know that if at birth I'd been able to make one petition, one request, it would have been that I was born blind. That's something to say. And those of us, of course, we all have sight and we wouldn't give up anything for our eyes. And yet finally Crosby here saying, if I could make one petition, it would be that again, I would be born blind. What a thing to say. And this is why. She says, because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my saviour. She truly understood uh, this passage, these truths. And so may this also be our greatest longing, the longing of our hearts, our greatest desire, that we will see Jesus face to face and dwell with our triune God forever in a new creation. But not only will God make the new creation, not only will he dwell there, which of course is the greatest thing about glory, which we've been thinking about, but also God will undo the curse recorded in Genesis chapter three. With God's immediate presence comes God's complete blessing. And so the final thing then we see in this passage is that God will remove the curse. Eden will be restored. After the fall of man into sin, God's presence was withdrawn. And the curse is now in place. We know this, don't we? We experience it every day of our lives. Christianity is the only religion that explains why our world is the way it is. But in the new creation, when God's immediate presence is restored, the curse will also be removed forever. And that was quite amazing, as I mentioned earlier. The Bible, it begins in Genesis with creation and the fall of man into sin and the curse. And this explains why the world is the way it is today. Why there is war and death and suffering and sin and pain. It explains why there is such a thing as Remembrance Sunday. But not only does the Bible explain all of this in the beginning, but it ends in the book of Revelation with the new creation and the removal of the curse. And now, just as an aside, I actually deleted this from my notes, but I'm going to tell it you anyway. This is an amazing uh, proof of the inspiration of the scriptures, that though it's written by around 40 different authors, 66 different books over about the period of 1,500 years, actually, we know there's only one author, God the Holy Spirit, because it's telling only one story, isn't it? The, the redemption of, of lost sinners, us, from a broken world through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the whole Bible is about. The unity of the scriptures show that the scriptures are actually uh, written, uh, inspired by God, though it has multiple authors. And we know that this is what the, this passage is referring to, the removal of the curse, it's, and it's referring to Eden, and the Bible's now doing full circle. Because firstly, the, the tree of life is mentioned in verse 2 of 22. Now, if you can remember it, in the Garden of Eden, when, when man sinned and fell, uh, this was forbidden for Adam and Eve to go, go near, and God guarded it with, with an angel. But now in a new creation, 
we see that it is unguarded. It's unguarded. Secondly, the next verse, John explicitly says, verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. The curse is undone. The curse is removed. And now this means that there will be no more tears. Verse 4, God will wipe away all tears. There will be nothing to cause any more tears. The cause of tears will be gone. In the same verse, we see there will also be no more death. And that's because there's no more sin. As we see in verse 8 of 21, those who, who are unrepentant and outside of Christ will go to that terrible place, the lake of fire, the second death. And then we read verse 27, that nothing impure shall ever enter that holy city. And so when we take these verses together, the picture is clear. There will no longer be any sin. There will be no more mourning and no more pain. All that is wrong with this world, all that is wrong with your life will be removed and creation will be as it should be. There will be no more weapons of mass destruction, no more human pride and a lust for power. God's redeemed saints will live with him and he will be their God and they will be his people. There will be no more wars, no more diseases, no more natural disasters. There will be no hospitals or courtrooms or prisons to where the Christian is going. No more need for a set of keys and an alarm and a lock on your mobile phone. No longer will Christians be being killed in Nigeria and North Korea. No longer will our children be taught ideologies that are against the word of God. No longer will people be deceived and deceive. No longer will there be fears of a third world war with nuclear weapons. No longer will there be evacuees and asylum seekers and death in general. No longer will sin reign. And that's because it says in verse 4, the old order of things has passed away. One day, God will make all things new. Sin has wrecked your life. Sin has wrecked my life. And the only answer is the Lord Jesus. And our only hope is this place that we're hearing of tonight. And so what can we learn from this scripture? Well, firstly, I, I think we find encouragement to be patient patient with our current circumstances. Maybe you're anxious, maybe you're fearful, maybe you're ill, maybe you struggle daily and no one else knows. Maybe you're burdened as you feel heavy as you look around and you see all the misery and destruction that our world undergoes. Yet before long, in the blink of an eye, those words will become true. Behold, I may call things new. There will be a reality. And these things will be no more. So may we be patient then as we look forward to that day. On the back of that, it means that we can trust God. We can trust him. Though we don't know why things have happened in our lives, why things are happening in the world. Yet we know that God knows what he's doing. God is in control. And he's got it all figured out. And one day, everything will be perfect. Another implication is that this current earth is not our home. This current earth in its current state 
is not our final destination. If we are in Christ this evening, that means if we are a Christian, if we are truly trusting in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin on the basis of what he's done on the cross alone as he died for our sin and rose again from the dead, if that is our only hope and plea, then that means that we are in Christ. That's what I mean by that phrase. And if we are in Christ this evening, then we are destined for this place, the new heavens and the new earth. This current life, this current world is passing away and soon will be no more. And so our correct response, our only right response if we truly believe these things tonight is that we are to live for eternity, for the life to come and not for the moment. May we store up treasure in heaven and not treasure on earth. Life is short and eternity is long. May we be like Charles Simeon, he was a minister in Cambridge in the 1800s um, and his assistant was a man called Henry Martin. He was a missionary to India and modern day Iran, would have been Persia back then I believe. And he died in his early 30s, Henry Martin did. And Charles Simeon, he had a, a portrait of him in his office or his vestry. And there was a man in his office one day and Charles Simeon, uh, Henry Martin dead by this point, he, he pointed to the portrait of Henry Martin and he said, see that blessed man there? What an expression of countenance. No one looks at me as he does. He never takes his eyes off me. And he always seems to be saying, be serious, be in earnest, do not trifle, do not trifle. And then Simeon, smiling, looking at the portrait and gently bowing, added, and I won't trifle, I won't trifle. May we never trifle and waste our lives when we could be lifting Jesus high here on earth whilst we still have breath in our lungs to do so. John Piper in his book, uh, Don't Waste Your Life, he's got an illustration of, of, of people dying, Christians dying and, and standing before the Lord and saying, look at my seashells, Lord. How did you spend your retirement? I went on cruises and played golf. Look at my seashells, Lord. How did you spend your life? I watched football every weekend. And I, got, uh, and I used to uh, live for, for watching Netflix. Look at my seashells, Lord. Don't trifle. And this means that our lives should be focused on, on serving God. Not that we would become missionaries or, or pastors, but, but, but he's to, to have it all, everything. Our time, our will. Instead of working for the, the big house, so if God's called you to work a normal job, that's good, that's right, that's where God will have you be, but, but why not give money to support ministries instead? Instead of destroying your family and, and marriage for that promotion, why not spend more time pointing your family and your friends and your neighbours to the Lord Jesus Christ? Encouraging your brothers and your sisters in Christ, seeking to grow, for them to grow, and you too in, in Christian maturity and likeness. And now, this is really the only right response to this passage this evening. If we believe, truly believe with all our hearts what we have read and what we read, I hope, every day in our Bibles. You should have a burning desire to tell others about the Lord Jesus and to live for his glory alone. To tell them that yes, this world is in a mess, we see it every day, but God is going to make all things new. And, and a part of that is that one day, He's going to remove sin 
and God is going to restore this world. All of that is only made possible in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what I want to do now as I finish this message. If you're listening this evening and you're not yet a Christian, maybe you go to church, maybe you're raised in a Christian home, but you know in your heart of hearts you are not trusting in Jesus, truly trusting in him. But I want to tell you how someone can become a partaker of this wonderful new creation we've been hearing about tonight. Between the fall of man, where Adam and Eve sinned, and, and has caused the mess that this world is in, and, and then this new creation, between the fall and this new world, something has happened to enable lost sinners to be reconciled to God and have a place in this world to come. And that, of course, is that momentous event of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came God, fully God, took on a human flesh, became fully man, lived a perfect life. He went to the cross and died in the place of sinners for their sins on the cross, bearing it all and raising again, rising again from the dead on the third day. So that whoever believes in him, whoever receives him as their savior wholeheartedly, they can be forgiven, cleansed, restored, and have a hope in this life that shall never fade and never change and never be taken away. And one day you'll be with God forever. And so the question is then, will you be there? Will you be there? That's the most important question you will ever ask yourself. Will you be there? Are you trusting in Jesus? Do you know God? And for those of us that are Christians this evening, may we live in the light of eternity. It's gonna look different for each of us in our different contexts, the different gifts and abilities. But may we live in the light of eternity and all that awaits us. Matthew Henry, in his uh, commentary on Psalm 39, he says this, To the wicked, death is the end of all joy. But to the godly, it is the end of all grief. To the wicked, death is the end of all joy. Anyone who dies outside of Christ, faith in him is the end of all joy. And the beginning of unending grief. The Bible speaks of a heaven. We've been hearing about that. It also speaks of a hell. And then he says, but to the godly, it is the end of all grief, all pain, all sin, all death. And as I finish, the question I want to leave you with is, what will death end for you? What will death end for you? Will it end all grief, all pain, all sin, all misery, and that's because your only hope is the Lord Jesus? Or will it end all joy, all happiness, all peace? And that's because you'll be forever outside of Christ and the love of God in that terrible place called hell. Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of love. Your word assures us of this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. And thank you, Father, for being able to see something of what this everlasting life will be like, as we will dwell in this place where there's no more sin and pain and death, and we'll dwell with you for all eternity. And Father, help us to live in the light of these truths, to act upon them, to believe them, and Lord, to walk faithfully with you uh, day by day until our, our, our faith turns to sight. And Lord, if there's any here tonight who have not yet found this true peace that is found in the Lord Jesus alone, 
Pray that you will bring them to that place of recognising that they're lost sinners in need of the Saviour. And Lord, for those of us who do know him, who love him and long to see him face to face, Father, help us to put these truths into practice and to live lives in the light of that coming day where we will dwell with you for all eternity. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.